0: For who you are. Well, welcome again. I have announcements for you this morning, and they're short and sweet unless I could make them drag out, which is always possible. If, like, a fly flies by, then I can talk about it. Um, but, okay, announcements are this. Um, as you probably noticed on the, lo- on the lobby, in the lobby, on your way in, um, that we are collecting donations for Vision House and for Cedar Way. And that's happening in two days, on Tuesday. And so if you haven't had a chance to sign up for something and you were hoping to, it is not too late. You just text the word HELPING to that Brickview number, and it'll automatically push a digital sign up list to you. And then you can bring those items anytime during the week um, in here. And we just collect them all on the ramp right outside this door here. And then we take them on over um, and distribute those to Bull Cedar Way and to Vision House. And The other announcement is that we love hearing from you. And so you can fill out your Connect card if you have prayer requests, comments, things that you're hoping to sign up for. And for those of you that are watching online, welcome. We also are very glad that you're here. And um, we love hearing from you. And the way that you sign up um, for things or write comments is on your digital sign-up card. And that's at brickviewchurch.com forward slash contact. And that's it. <laughs>
1: How you feeling today? You you got some hype to you? I don't. So, so here's the deal. Uh, Our very own Trevor Gray got married last night. So, ladies, he is officially off the market. Actually, I haven't sent the paperwork in yet, but. But we had, so we had the rehearsal up there on Friday, you know, Friday night, and then spent all that time with his family and friends and all that, and then again, it was, this was on Woodby Island all day yesterday, so I am, I'm just like hung over from all the social, you know, so, and yet I feel like, I feel like God really has something for us today, and there's a part of me that I, I am like literally exhausted, however, I think God has something for us today, so let me pray And just ask God to move among us today. God, I just, I thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you meet us individually in our lives. I thank you for the way that you give energy to us when we don't have it. And I thank you for the way that you just long to bless our lives and breathe life into each one of us in a unique way, right here and now and on into eternity. So God, would you speak today? Would your spirit move among us? In Jesus' name, amen. So when I, when I first started following Jesus, um, I attended a vineyard church. Have any of you ever gone to vineyard churches? Oh, man, lively. Um, very charismatic. So people spoke in tongues all the time. The worship was amazing. Lots of people had like a prophetic word for other people. And I talked a little bit about that experience last week. And they were big on supernatural healing. So they would have people come forward in services and stuff for healing very often. And I was, this was really the first church that I had kind of attended since I'd become a Christian. I was brand new and I did not know what was what. And I was also a college baseball player. I was a pitcher suffering from an injured shoulder. And my, my entire identity was wrapped up in being good at baseball. Really, apart from that, I had no idea who I was or what was valuable about me at all. So one morning at church, the worship music was roaring. It was in full effect, and they invited people to come forward for healing. It was like the hour of power. They invited people forward for healing, and I was like, why the heck not? So I went, and I tried to explain to them through the music about my shoulder and about baseball and all of that. And with this spine-tingling worship just piercing my soul and with a team of trained spiritual healers laying hands on me, I really sensed that God's power could heal my shoulder. And so they just cried out to God for me, and it was touching. And I really sensed that God would supernaturally heal me. Now, I wasn't certain, of course, but I felt that it would happen. It didn't happen. Nothing changed. And within a few weeks, officially, I had to give up my dream. So I, I, I felt lost for the next year or two and just trying to figure out who I was and find a new identity. People prayed over me in faith. I received it in faith. And then nothing. And those that praying were sincere, I think. I was definitely sincere. And yet, God was silent. Okay, in 2008, I had a very different kind of experience with healing. We, we went on our first team trip from Brookview to Haiti um, in 2008 with a team of 12 from Brookview. And we'd never been, we didn't know anything. I'd never been on a mission trip, period, let alone to Haiti. So we just trusted a friend from Bellingham who had done this several times to lead our team. And he talked us into doing something that I will never do again. It was like an 11-day trip, and we spent four of those days in a small village in a valley where it's really hot, living among the Haitians. So we didn't have a hotel. We just had, like, camping tents to sleep in. There was no running water. There were no toilets. You guys, there was just a hole in the ground with sheet metal around it with some twine holding the sheet metal up, and there were big gaps in it. And you're just like, (laughs) I I think... So when I, when I saw that, when our team saw that, I said to myself, you know what? I can go without a number two for four days. I, I'm pretty sure. Ladies, sorry, but turns out, no. And you guys, it was about 107 degrees every day, and at night, it would cool all the way down to like 95. And most of us on the team got sick in some way in that village. Um, The very first to get sick was Jeff Satterthwaite. And uh, many of you know Jeff. Um, He and Monica, his wife, beautiful, they moved to Arizona not long ago. And man, do we miss them. Do we miss them? Yes, we do. But in that village, Jeff got intestinal distress, diarrhea, okay? And so Jeff is in the sheet metal over the hole every 20 minutes or so. And this goes on for a couple of days. And then it was my turn. So we're sitting around, and I've obviously been in and out of there a few times, and people are talking, and somebody's remarking about my, my problem. And Monica, Jeff's wife, says, Oh, Jason, do you have diarrhea? So I embarrassingly nodded. I'm like, it, in, in those trips, like, there's nothing sacred on those trips. <laughs> so I, just, I nodded, and she, so she said, Oh, that's terrible. She said, do you you need some Cipro? Okay, Cipro, for those of you who don't know, it's an antibiotic that you take to third world countries for this very issue. So we had told the team all to get some, to get some from their doctor and and bring it. So Monica says, Jason, do you need some Cipro? Jeff and I have plenty. And after several days of misery, Jeff looks at his wife and says, we do? (laughs) She's like, oh, yeah, sorry, babe. <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> oh. But she took care of me, though. <laughs> Actually, Jen, we were, we were good to go. But. So there was a lot of sickness there over those days. And, like, the heat alone was an issue. We, we weren't sleeping well on the ground at night, as you can imagine, in the heat. We were battling dehydration. Um, we didn't shower for four days. Okay, we took like diaper wipe baths, you know, it was rugged. I will never do a trip with people, you know, from Brookview like, like that again. We learned. It's, it's really hard to serve well when everybody is just wiped out. Um, but in that village, the sickest person was a young woman named Chelsea. And she and her husband, Adam, were in their mid-20s. They'd recently been married. And Chelsea got so sick that she couldn't even get up. Um, So she was having all kinds of abdominal pain and it was just, it was, it was bad. So at night we were all gathering for dinner and Chelsea and her husband, Adam, they didn't come to dinner. Um, They just stayed in the, in the tent and Adam, she stayed in the tent. Adam stayed with her. She couldn't really even get up. He stayed with her just to comfort her. So I'm sitting at dinner and I decided, ah, I better, I better go check on them because um, this, this, this is serious. Like, we, meet, we might need a doctor if this, if this doesn't clear up soon. So I went to the tent, and I asked how she was doing and asked if we needed to try to figure out a way to get some medical care. And they said that if this continued for very much longer, we might. Okay, but finding a competent doctor when you're like a team like us in Haiti in the middle of nowhere, that, well, that was not going to be easy. So from outside the tent through the little window opening, you know, in one of those Coleman tents, I just asked, can I pray for you? So she said, sure. And so I prayed. I prayed that God would heal her. I prayed that she would feel, that she would feel better and that she would be able to do what she came to do. So I prayed, and then I, I went back to dinner. Five minutes later, Adam and Chelsea come walking into to dinner. And, and Adam says... He says, you're not going to, this is crazy. He's like, right after you walked away, Chelsea like sat up suddenly, and he's like, it totally freaked me out because I thought she was dying or something. And Chelsea jumped in, and she's like, yeah, so when you were praying for me, I got this like sharp pain in my belly, and when you stopped praying, it stopped, and suddenly I felt fine. So I sat up, excited to tell Adam, and it just freaked him all the way out. <laughs> She's like, but I'm telling I feel great. And everyone at the table is looking at me like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I prayed and asked for healing. And it was this, like, surreal moment. Everyone, everyone, is, we were all just like, whoa. Just in awe, okay? And Chelsea truly was fine. After that, she was 100% healthy. And she was amazing on that trip, just serving people, loving people, endless energy in some very difficult circumstances. It was incredible. Okay, years later, another experience. A man in our church, and very good friend of mine, got cancer, Chris Perry. He was in his 30s with a wife and two beautiful girls. And we had prayer meetings for Chris, asking God for healing. His family prayed, his friends prayed, his church prayed, his parents' church prayed. Chris was anointed with oil. Whole groups laid hands on him and and prayed, and Chris got sicker and sicker and sicker, and he died. And losing Chris was, it was devastating. While that was going on, my son Cameron got a brain injury playing football around his 13th birthday. And in his teens, he slowly disintegrated into depression and anxiety and addiction and suicide attempts. And we watched this confident, athletic, smart kid fall apart. And we prayed like crazy. So did the church. So did our extended family and their churches. So at 18, after another suicide attempt, he was in the ICU at UW Hospital. And many of you know this story, but Jen and I were sitting next to his bed, And Jen just said, sweetheart, we don't know how to help you. The doctors and mental hospitals and treatment programs, they're not working. And I've been sensing from God for quite some time that maybe I should ask you if you want a fresh start. So what would you think of moving to Haiti to hit reset and to just start over? Because as a kid, on all those trips when you went with us, all those times, you always came alive in Haiti when we would go. And nothing seems to be working here. What do you think? And he said, let's do it. Nothing else here is working. Yeah, I'd like to try that. And it was a move made in desperation. And it felt like the right thing. But you're like, we want you to be safe, so move to Haiti. Wow. And many of you know what's happened. Cam's now been there for four years. We didn't have the church lay hands on him or anoint him with oil. None of that kind of stuff made sense in that season. He didn't want that in that season. So we, we prayed for him from afar, and we, and we pleaded with God, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse for five years. And then when he was 18, he moved to Haiti to live in a village, no running water in the house, no regular electricity, dirty, hot, and yet in the last four years, God has done a miracle in him. He has joy, he has friendship, he has meaning, and he has Jesus. He has deeply reengaged in his walk with Jesus, and you can just see the fruits of the Spirit emerging in him, just increasing, right, love and joy. It's real, and uh, peace, and patience, and kindness, right, and goodness, and faithfulness, and you see this gentleness, and the thing that was lacking for so long, you see self-control. Now, it wasn't immediate when he relocated to Haiti. It wasn't an instantaneous healing, more of a progressive one, and yet for anybody who knew him four years ago, and you still know him now, it is obvious that something deeply supernatural has occurred. He was on death's doorstep, and he is now filled with unbelievable life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Words from Jesus that can be heard at revivals and at funerals. Words that give us faith for the miraculous and words that give, us, that give comfort to the grieving. But also, words that raise difficult and infinite questions. Why does God answer some prayers and not others? Why does God give one family a miracle and not another? Why are some given extra years of life while others go helplessly to the grave? But we're in this series thinking about the great I am. Moses asked God, who was speaking to him from a burning bush, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am. Language that Jesus picked up and used again and again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And up for today, I am the resurrection and the life. Now let me set the stage for the statement that Jesus makes. This is John chapter 11. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one, John tells us, who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus is with his disciples, and he gets word from another town that his friend, one of his best friends, is sick. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were extremely close with Jesus. He and his disciples would go to their home often, And he loved them. And it appears that Jesus had been especially close with this family for for some years. So with Jesus healing and doing all of these miracles all over everywhere, Lazarus' sisters send word, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So Jesus does not immediately go to Lazarus. He waits two days. And then he makes the journey back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, Now, Martha and Mary are both grieving the loss of their brother. And in their grief, they each say the exact same thing to Jesus. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha says this to Jesus standing on two feet. Martha says this looking him face to face, processing mostly intellectually. Mary says it on her knees at Jesus' feet, in despair, processing mostly emotionally. People process loss and grief differently, right? Those of you that have lost somebody, you've seen this. Different people have different responses, and they have different coping mechanisms. It says, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So Jesus arrives on the scene to what is the modern-day equivalent of of a funeral or or like a wake. And and many have gathered to comfort the sisters and to to grieve with them. When when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So Martha comes to Jesus, and she is grieving, but there's still like this faint hope, right? I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She has seen Jesus perform miracles, and she has heard stories of more, and she's trying not to get her hopes up, but she's wondering what might happen next. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And it kind of feels like she's sort of probing here. Like, I I know that my brother will rise one day far into the future when God will breathe life into the dead. Is that what you're referencing, Jesus? Or are you talking maybe about something more immediate? Like he will rise when? Today? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now Jesus does not answer the question that she's probing at. He affirms Martha's faith, but he also insists that he is the foundation on which her faith rests. I am the resurrection and the life. Meaning, I am the Savior who defeats death. I am the entry point into the fullest, freest, most uncorrupted sort of life. Your hope is exactly right, and I am the foundation of that hope. Do you believe this? Martha, do you rest your grief and your hope on me? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world so she understands what it is that he's really asking and she affirms it but still she has no idea what this might mean for the present moment right she's cautious but she's hopeful so she goes and she gets mary she gets her sister when mary reached the place where jesus was and saw him she fell at his feet and said lord if you had been here my brother would not have died Where were you? Why didn't you come, Jesus? Okay, now it's too late. I love you. I believe in you. I trust you. But I'm hurt, and I'm confused, and this is breaking me. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. "'Where have you laid him?' he asked. "'Come and see, Lord,' they replied. Jesus wept. So Mary falls at Jesus' feet, weeping. "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" Mary's, Mary's uh, intellectual, right, cerebral belief in Jesus has not been shaken. That's still there. Like Martha, she really believes that Jesus is the Messiah, But future theological certainty does little to remove the current sting of grief. Have you ever been there before? When together forever in heaven one day cannot remove the anguish that I feel today. So John John says Jesus is deeply moved in spirit, and Jesus also begins to weep. And you have to ask, like, why? Why is Jesus weeping? Jesus knows that Lazarus is about to be raised. He's already told us that. And yet Jesus has this momentary like breakdown. This is not the the word that's used here for weep is not like Jesus got watery eyes. Okay, this the picture is like uncontrolled sobbing. This is an ugly cry. It's probably snot and stuff. (laughs) Jesus had a beard. You don't try to figure out how that, that looked. Okay, if Jesus knows. What's about to happen? Why is he like this? Well, apparently, he's taking upon himself the grief of those that he loves, Mary and the others. He is completely swept up in their moment of pain. Christian author that has probably shaped my faith more than any other is C.S. Lewis. Any other C.S. Lewis fans in here? Oh, man. Books like Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters but also, you guys, the Narnia series. Those children's books. There is so much theological depth woven into the tapestry of those those books. And in The Magician's Nephew, Diggory, the child the story centers around, approaches Aslan the lion, the one representing Jesus, with a question. Diggory's mother is, is dying, and there's no cure for her condition. And suddenly, Diggory discovers this magical world, and he starts to wonder if Aslan might be able to heal his mother. So he approaches Aslan to make the request, and this is, this is what happens next. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid it might say no. But he was taken aback when it did neither. So in the face of real, critical, life-threatening need, Diggory worked up the nerve to ask, and God was silent. This is an experience that I've had before and will have again. This is an experience most of us know all too well. And it is brilliantly captured in this children's story. But what comes next, takes, I think, takes this scene to another level. Diggory shifts from like reserved and hopeful to impassioned and desperate. But please... Please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. So in the, in the shining tears of Aslan's eyes, Diggory saw deep sorrow and care. And this boy Diggory, if you do research, Diggory was like an autobiographical character, for C.S. Lewis himself. Because, if you know the story, like Diggory, Lewis grew up with a single parent. And like Diggory, Lewis lost his mother when he was 10 years old. So here's C.S. Lewis, like a world-renowned philosopher and theologian, decades removed from all of it, still processing his grief, still working out the loss of his mother through a children's story. And like Mary, C.S. Lewis looked into the eyes of God and like Mary, he didn't get the answer he wanted or any answer at all. But what he eventually came to discover was love and care in the face of God. So all through the Bible, from Moses to Jesus, God is described as compassion. A word literally meaning co-suffering. God is the one who feels our pain and grieves alongside us. God is the one who weeps when we weep. So let's keep reading. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe You will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine? Lazarus is resurrected. He is raised to life. And the way that Jesus did it was to call out in a loud voice. Surely the disciples remember back to what he said in John chapter 5 when he said, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So in the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus is reaching back to a promise in John 5, and he's reaching forward to a promise of what's coming in John 20, his own resurrection. The miracle of Lazarus' resurrection is a sign. In other words, it's more than a miracle. The the miracle of of Lazarus' resurrection is a sign that's pointing to something. It's a sign pointing to Jesus' identity and authority, and it's a sign pointing to a future reality. Jesus says to the grieving, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he calls Lazarus out of his own grave. Like this is, okay, this is big-time healing. I mean, I can heal Chelsea in a tent, but this is big-time healing. But it, fi- it fits into the same category as any earthly healing. I should ground myself for the lightning because God healed Chelsea. I just happened to be standing there. Okay, all right. those are, oh, Stop it. Okay, but this healing of... of Lazarus, it, it fits into the same category really as any other healing. It's physical healing or emotional healing or relational healing. And Jesus can and does all of these on occasion right here and right now. But in this life, it never comes in all of its fullness. Never. There's a massive difference between healing and salvation. Healing is a sign in the present that points us to a future reality salvation like healing is a small taste of the kingdom that points to what is coming one day in full healing is a here and now sign that points to salvation what's coming in full so there's there's hope that god will move and that he'll move right here and right now whenever he does it's a little taste It's a little taste, a little bit of heaven breaking in to earth right here, right now. It's a taste of what's to come one day in full. And Jesus is saying to Martha before she sees the resurrection of her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Not long after, Jesus suffers and he dies and he is put into his own tomb. And after three days, he walks out of his own grave. And that is what gives us hope forever. And that hope can never be taken away. That hope is for anyone, anyone, anywhere that calls on the name of Jesus. And so often in our culture, when we think of heaven, we're like, yeah, I want to go to heaven. People, what are we envisioning? In our culture, people mostly think of heaven as like this disembodied escape. Right, because this world is filled with pain and suffering. And so the kingdom is an escape. It's this disembodied euphoric state of we don't know what. Many envision something spiritual and yet very vague, like this disembodied bliss. But the biblical picture of the kingdom in all of its fullness of salvation, you guys, it is not a disembodied existence at all. It is not non-physical. It is an embodied physical experience. The promise is that just as Jesus was raised bodily, so too we will be raised bodily. According to Jesus, heaven is not an escape. It's a renewal. It's a renewal of all things. It's a renewal of the earth and trees and vegetation, the animal kingdom, human bodies, human relationships. It's the healing of all things in every way. So our relationship to creation and to God and to one another, no more shame. No more sickness, no more hate or anger, no more violence, no more disease, no more disabilities, no more hunger or poverty, no more human hierarchy, no more degradation of anyone in any way, no more distance from God, right? Salvation. This is the kingdom. This is the promise. And People often look at all the pain in our world and ask, why doesn't God do something? And the answer is, in Jesus, he did and he is. But way more is coming. And, and many of you have experienced a taste of the kingdom in some way. He's healed your body, right? Or he's healed a relationship. For some of you, he has resurrected a marriage, for others, he's healed anxiety or depression or addiction. Like you, you felt, if you think back, you felt stuck, you felt lost, and you felt hopeless. And somehow God touched you, and the kingdom touched you, and you got a little taste of what's one day coming in full. Jesus said the kingdom of God is present. It, it is at hand, right? Sometimes he talked about it like it is right here, right now. Other times he talked about it like it's, it's distant, it's far off, it's coming one day. So which is it? It's both. It it is here in part, but it's coming in full. And this is the hard part. This is the hard part. It's not here completely. Not yet. There is so much suffering. There's so much pain and grief and loss and heartache because we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. And so when it comes to randomness and mystery of present-day healing, some in this room have, have a, a story like, like Chelsea or like Cameron. Others of you have a disappointment story like my shoulder, or far worse, a, dis- a disappointment story like Chris Perry. And I'd imagine that quite a few of us in this room have some combination of both. Yet as painful as the reality of this is, Jesus said that it is all to be expected because we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Tyler Staten says it this way. He says, Jesus has been victorious over sin, and we can know that victory right now, already. But for the full experience of that victory, we're still waiting on Jesus' return, not yet. And over a lifetime of apprenticeship with Jesus, you will experience the overwhelming joy of the already, and you will experience the pain and tension of the not yet. And that tension is made bearable only by a God who didn't shy away from either. By Jesus, who was a victorious Savior, a King ushering in a kingdom. By Jesus, who was a suffering servant, a man of sorrows. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. And so if you're wondering, if you're wondering about a specific pain, is it God's will to heal? Yes. Of course, God wills healing. God always wills healing. And God will heal all of our pain for good. That's a promise. What we're unclear on is when or how that healing will occur. And that's where it gets fuzzy and complicated. And that's where we're left without answers, what feels like silence. And that's where we have to, in faith, look into Aslan's eyes. So let me, let me just say this. The safest thing about praying for healing is that the God we pray to is good. And he, he repurposes everything, everything, even our suffering, into our redemption. There is nothing that you and I will experience this side of eternity that he will not weave into the tapestry, the beautiful tapestry of our redemption. We long for healing because it's right now. It's immediate relief. But healing in this life, it it turns out, is actually kind of short-lived. Like all present healing is temporary. Everyone who gets healed one day will get sick again and they will get hurt again and their body will wear out with age and ultimately they will die I mean the blind man in John 9 that Jesus opened his eyes he opened his eyes but then one day his eyes were closed for good and the paralytic who picked up his mat and walked one day was laid down and laid down for good and Lazarus walked out of the tomb but then he did eventually have a second funeral right Lazarus is still not walking the earth (laughs) I just can't die Jesus wants us not to confuse a little taste of healing today with the forever feast that's coming, what we call salvation. And based on your background, when we hear the word salvation these days, many think, they just immediately think of like altar calls and sort of repeat after me prayers. And all of that stuff has its place, but it's not salvation. Biblically, salvation is just the fullness of life right? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Salvation, it, it, like, it includes the forgiveness of sins, but it goes beyond that to the fully redeemed life where everything is healed forever. Life to the full as God intended it forever. I mean, John begins his gospel previewing what the whole story is about, Jesus. And he says this, he says, in him was life, And that life was the light of all mankind. And at the end of John, after telling the whole story of Jesus the best that he could, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. That is a statement of how and what from Jesus. I am the resurrection. My sacrificial suffering and victory over death are the way. You can come alive through me, what I have done for you. And I am the life. That's about both quantity and quality. I mean, it's, it's true that this, he's like, it's true that this life I'm offering can go on forever, but more profoundly, it's of such a quality you'd actually want to live it forever dallas willard writes the message of jesus himself and the early disciples was not just one of the forgiveness of sins but rather of newness of life so one of my favorite most vivid memories of childhood is my mom baking any of you have moms that could really bake yes thank you mom you're sitting next to your mama like that hug her right now (laughs) i just i remember as a kid like four or five years old just sitting at the counter of the the little counter of the the kitchen like watching and my mom was skilled in the kitchen i would just as a kid i'd just watch her in awe you know cake and pies and cookies and brownies and it was all from scratch right like just as her mother had taught her and i'd sit and watch wide-eyed And she loved that I was there. She loved that I was interested. And so she'd, every once in a while, just flash me a soft smile. And she could feel my admiration, but also my anticipation. Because she knew that this wasn't just a relational thing, but I was sitting there dreaming of the finished product. And so every once in a while, she'd say, you want a little taste, Jason? And she'd give me a you know, a spatula or a little spoonful of cookie dough or hand me the beater to lick, right? And so, some days, I, I actually couldn't sit there for very long just waiting for her to offer. So I'd, I'd just get too angsty, and I would just be like, can I get a taste, Mom? And sometimes she said yes. Other times, she said no. For reasons that I could not understand (laughs) as a four year old, sometimes I had to wait until the cake or the pie or the cookies were done. But what was never in doubt was that she loved me. Because she just smiled at me sitting at the counter, right? And whenever she finished baking, I knew I was going to be at the table with the finished product. The pie or the cake or the cookies or whatever. And they were going to be amazing. Better than a taste of dough or a lick of a beater. (laughs) Many of you have experienced the kingdom in some way. God has already touched your life. He's given you a friend when you really needed one. Or he's given you peace in a tough season. Or he's healed your body in some way or healed a broken relationship or resurrected a marriage or brought you through depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. And for some of you, you're like, yes to everything you just said. Maybe God has healed a behavior pattern or an addiction that was like killing you for reasons we can't possibly comprehend, sometimes we get a taste. And sometimes we don't. There's still pain and there's still loss and there's still sorrow. But if, if we sit at the counter and watch God do his thing, we can always know that when the table is finally set, we will have a place to sit and our plate will be full. There is a difference between present day healing and the fullness of salvation. God wants us to sit at the counter and he wants us to keep asking for a taste. But he doesn't want us to confuse a lick of the beater with the baked brownies that are coming. So this is the key to the whole thing. We ask for and receive all that we can right now but our ultimate trust is in not yet. In the beginning, God miraculously brought into existence all of creation. We hear that so often, like, yeah. (laughs) Think about that. (laughs) Holy smokes, man. The sun, the stars, the earth, the universes, the galaxies, I don't even know what you call all that expanse out there. And the oceans and the land and all of the life And one day, he will miraculously restore it all, supernaturally heal it once and for all. That's salvation. In the meantime, we sit at the counter watching him work, and we get handed a beater from time to time in his grace, in his kindness. But no, the present taste pales in comparison to what's coming. We are all invited to the table, to the feast, to a full plate. How? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Father in heaven, I thank you for all the different ways that I've had a taste of the kingdom and, a, and just a, a taste of what's coming. Because of your goodness to me, and I thank you for that and those blessings and those slices of heaven that come to us again and again in this life. I thank you for those for every single one of us in this room. But I pray this morning for those that are that are in pain and that have cried out to you to to move and to do something, and there's been silence. God, I pray that like Diggory, they would they would take their gaze off of the paws and the nails of a great lion and look up into the eyes to see your love and your concern for where they are right now. Jesus, lead us into your, your compassion. Lead us into your care. We need you. Amen.